What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Pinnacle Performance Podcast. Today, I have Andrew Hauser on for you all. And Andrew is someone who's been integrating a lot of these different systems for a long time. He starts with DNS, PRI, and then he got into other things like Adola. And just there's so many different things. And it's really cool to see someone who's been a higher level practitioner for quite a few years and just their perspective on what they think is important and how they've evolved over time. And Andrew is someone I really admire the work of. And this really was more of a conversational podcast. Uh, We just started talking for a bit. And then I was like, well, maybe I should probably start recording at this point. So uh, we just hit the record button, went right into the conversation. And there are some higher level concepts in here. So if you feel a little bit confused or lost, um, that's totally fine. Uh, That would probably be expected for some of the things that are in this podcast. But it's really fascinating. If you have any background in any of these systems at all, it's really interesting and I hope you enjoy. So with the cervical spine and, and the tests, uh, could you just go into like maybe a little bit more detail about how yeah. you feel like the cervical spine influences and how important that is? Because a lot of the times for me, um, I'm starting to realize how much of a factor that is and how that influences a lot of the things down the chain. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say probably about a decade ago now, um, particularly cervical lateral neck flexion. And, and I'm going to use C4, C5. That's kind of my, my level that I'm really looking at. Um, a lot of reasons for that. And that's how the Postural Restoration Institute pushes it. Um, I'd say it's taken even more focus for me probably the last couple of years. Like I've gotten more appreciation for the hyoid and oh man, like the hyoid and its ability to like cleared up more shoulders and neck next from a just a manual perspective from treating amylhyoid than anything you know and it's like as soon as i started seeing that i was like wow okay there's something here and then i like uh eldoa one of their their biggest exercises is a c4 c5 uh eldoa um uh it's like one of their four golden eldoas that they teach you in the first the first course you'd ever take with them um i mean you have the vagus nerve is running right through there uh, I'm not the, the, well, the vagus nerve is the phrenic nerve is what I was going to say. Um, which again, from a respiratory perspective, I mean, that's, that's the big boy. So, I mean, it innervates both sides of the diaphragm and innervates both sides of the brain. Like that's a, it's an important nerve. So it just, again, it was like just seeing more and more things start to point to not saying one area is more important than, than any other area, but like I knew that test had a lot to do with uh, what what I was seeing, um, and so I I utilized that test to really decide okay, am, do I need to be upright with somebody? Is am I going to get carryover with a supine exercise? Like if they're on their back, and if like if that's rigid on both sides, um, I knew for sure at that point. I'm sorry that didn't kick you off, did it? No, we're still. I knew for sure at that point that I wasn't going to get carryover. Um, I mean, that took a lot of tests, retests. I don't want you to think like that just happened overnight oh, for sure. um, yeah. because it, it was, it was like a lot of uh, Heidi wise helped me a ton when I was going through that. Um, and that was early on when they had taught the, the vision course. And I told you, like, I was just trying to figure out like, okay, we're not going to send people to Lincoln to see Heidi's an optometrist for your listeners that, that don't know. I'm brilliant, brilliant mind. She's, uh, she's in Savannah, Georgia now. Uh, but like, 
just seeing like, okay, if I could get somebody neutral, let's say on the table, and this was before I was really testing the neck, but then it's like, okay, then they get up and they walk around, they come back and now they're back right. to where they started. And I was like, ah, something just wasn't adding up for me. And that wasn't every case. So don't, don't get me wrong. Cause you can hit home runs on, on those patients as well. No, I know what but, you mean, yeah. but I started, um, but as soon as I started doing that, I was like, okay, like there's something here. And I'd go, I'd get people upright way quicker. Um, and as soon as that started happening, they'd walk around, they'd come back and be like, all right, it's, it's sticking. So something's changing. And I just saw enough, like had enough repetitions of that at that point to be like, all right, this is an important test. Um, and then as I, I'm trying to think who told me this and, and just kind of been able to confirm it over time. So I don't know if it was Ron, if it was Heidi, if it was James or Anderson or Mike Cantrell, I'm, I'm not sure, but they're saying, man, that lateral cervical lateral test uh, really gives you a great indication of what's happening in the contralateral foot. So if you're hung up, let's say on the right side, you're probably going to have that left hip uh, adduction drop or Ober's test is going to be positive. And then the ipsilateral ankle. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and it just started, and I'm, I'm kind of a top, like how I just kind of view the body. It's definitely more top down than, than bottom up. Like I, I see, especially the visual system, the breath, like all of this is like really influencing what's happening down at the ground. That's kind of how, that's even how I've taught like running mechanics over the years has been, I was always geared more towards like, if I can clean up the arms then I should be able to clean up the legs. Yeah, yeah. Um, now there's research coming out to support that, which is not, which is nice when it's uh, it's just yes. confirmation bias, right? <laughs> I think the, uh, the cervical thing is really interesting. And if, if I think it might be helpful, like just for me, even uh, if you can give me an example, like let's say you, you have someone come in and you test their lateral flexion and like, let's just start with the example of like they're locked up on both sides. Yeah. And I see it commonly too. Like you'll do something, they're neutral. They go walk around, they come in the next day, they're back to square one. Like what, what types of activities or strategies are you thinking about doing with that kind of a person to help things stick a little bit more? Yeah. So I'll, I'll be honest, probably my favorite place. There's two really good places to start in those cases. In my opinion, um, my personal favorite, I'll reverse squat, but I'll, I'll just do it like off of a squat rack drop them down. Uh, and then I'll mess with their visual system a little bit more, <laughs> but, um, like I, I'm very specific about where I stand so they can pick me up at like their periphery. Um, obviously if you're doing something online, you can't really do that. You can set them up. I've, I've tried that actually in a room so they can, or I'll at least bring up different things to, Hey, can you see that picture on you know, the left side of your peripheral vision? Um, uh, most of those individuals, they're going to want to look straight down um, and, or they're just going to want to just look down completely. Uh, and so not allowing that to take place is a big part of that reverse squat. Um, and then you can, depending on what else you can play with, like their setup, their lower body setup, uh, depending on kind of what else you find in your exam, but that's a definite go-to technique for me, just from a PRI perspective. Um, but it just, I mean, you get, you can start a lot of people there. It just feels good for people yeah. too. 
um, especially when you're talking about you're trying to film the diaphragm. Now, I don't usually use a balloon in those instances, but it'll make it more powerful if you can. Uh, and that's just more the setting I've been in. Like you got to be in a pretty, you have to have a very good relationship with an athlete that you're working with. If they're going to start blowing up a balloon or they just have to be in a lot of pain. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, especially when other people are around. I couldn't. Yeah. I totally get that. You, so that you mentioned the one the squat, I like what's the second yeah. one. The other one, uh, short seated reach actually. And I use that every day. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So again, um, and like you can manipulate like which arm they're reaching with. So mm -hmm. you can start to get more of a rotational component if you need to, uh, again, you're challenging the visual system. Both are just great for the neck, um, for like, if you have whiplash patients at all, like great people for that uh jaw issues for like people that grind um, i've seen good good results in those individuals um, but you get more uh you start to get the uh, issue of tuberosity like reference at that point which again it's just a, a whole other neurological experience for a person uh and it's it's honestly it's just a little more it, it can be more comfortable for people than the squat depending on where, where they're at and what they have going on. But there are very few instances, like I'll do that post-surgery for people because they can get in the position still where like maybe a squat, like whether it's an arm or a leg, they can't physically get into it. So it's a great, uh, it's like flip a coin. You're, you're going to get what you want out of either one. You're just going to kind of drive it a lot differently. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, what if you have someone that's a little bit more asymmetrical in nature? Like, let's say they have um, a pretty exaggerated um, left side bend pattern. Is there, are you going to start with similar positions or are you thinking maybe I need to get this person doing something a little bit different? No, I'll generally get them doing something more different. Um, we talked a little bit about prone activities. So it, it depends on how out of whack they are let's say, but I'll use a, a kind of a version of like a posterior capsule stretch. Um, and I'll, pl I play around with whether it's a reach with the, with the opposite arm, or, uh, if they've got some low back stuff going on as it is, uh, then I can actually get some traction out of that position too. What I, depending on what I do with the hand and what I do with the opposite leg. Um, but uh, I'll do a, there's a lot of sideline stuff I do too. Um, I mean, it's an oldie, but a goodie, uh, the, uh, just a right sideline adductor pullback. And, uh, I do that in combination. I combine a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, I will do a, I use a pretty big towel roll, um, and just try to cram it back or let them cram it back as far as we can. And, and it turns into an obturator inhibition. So if they cannot find their glute need on the side, we're doing that pullback then I go to the towel roll. If they can, great, great. I'm, I'm not going to need to drive. Uh, that's not necessarily going to be part of what, what we do there, but I want to make sure they can get that uh, femur sitting in the acetabulum in, the, in that posterior capsule uh, yeah. to really expand. Because at that point too, I know like, okay, once they feel that, I know we're getting posterior mediastinal expansion and like we've done their diaphragm. And like, that's when the exciting stuff from a respiratory place really starts to take place. And like, if they can do that, they'll feel different no matter, no matter what. I'm not saying every, all their problems are going to be solved, but they're going to feel different. Yeah. Can you explain the, uh, the benefits of a sideline position 
for the visual system and how yes. we influence on it. Cause I think that's a really important thing to consider. Yeah. And I know we briefly, I think talked on that with a, a individual that we worked together on. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's really like opening up your whole world on one side. So it's, uh, I would consider, compare it to, it's inhibiting one side, it's facilitating another, but from a visual perspective, like if I'm right sideline, uh, I do a lot of, of that same activity where I'm actually uh, utilizing trunk rotation as well. Mm. Just in athletes specifically, I find the left, uh, the left chest wall to be a big inhibitor. Uh, so then it allows me to open that up, drive rotation a little differently. There's some forearm stuff that's kind of involved in that, but again, then it opens up like the entire left side of their visual field is now open, especially if we're uh, working on any sort of cervical rotation with that. But you start to open up that, uh, that new hemisphere, visual hemisphere, they're then automatically, they're more comfortable shifting onto that side. It's, it's freedom to shift. Yes. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there a time in which you would want to put someone in left sideline first, or you mentioned like, Hey, I'm going to stand on their left side. Is there a time when you would flip-flop that and you would go right first? Yeah. So there are instances, I would just say they're so, especially from a visual perspective, I've just found those to be fewer and far between than the left side, but for sure. I mean, we have worked with uh, so many high level, especially baseball players where it, they are so locked in on one side or the other. And, and it's not, it doesn't always necessarily fall in on like what would be a, a typical pattern that, that, uh, that we're taught. And I, I just heard early on, like, you know what, like we all have our biases of, of how we've learned, but there's like, just go with what you see. And, and then if it doesn't work, okay. <laughs> you know what, yeah. go back and try, uh, go back to what, you know, like, all right, like these are the things I normally would see, but this is falling outside of that. So, uh, but yeah, for sure there are, there are instances. I mean, if you have, if, if I've had people that are, uh, especially when it comes to like a hip abduction or a, uh, a shoulder abduction test, if something's just not adding up for me, I'll try the other side mm. or I'll, or I'll, I've done this a number of times. Like I'll just, uh, like I'll put music on and I'll, put it over one shoulder or the other. So I'm eliciting a similar response. I'm just doing it through a different neurological driver, I suppose. Is that a similar um, sort of idea you're going for in terms of the hemisphere opening up yeah. when you put it yeah. in one versus the other? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I heard of one time where uh, this guy put, this guy told the, their client literally just listen to music only in your left ear. Cause this person yeah. just constantly had headphones in for the next week and they did. And most of their problems went away. It's yeah. obviously not always going to be that easy, but I thought it was really interesting. And I, I also like how you brought up something I've been um, digging into myself personally. We talked a little bit before we started recording here was this idea of people that get stuck in a true left stance, which is um, something I started learning from James Anderson, Mike Cantrell, I've taken their course. I think I'm going to have them on this podcast too, eventually at some point. Uh, but I know that you have a lot of experience with this as well. Like, uh, 
what are your thoughts generally speaking on, cause I don't, I don't want to speak for you. I want to hear what your thoughts are. Like, how do people actually end up in this opposite pattern of what we would expect and how common is it? Uh, just from a pure testing perspective, um, in high level athletes, I found it, it's more common than not in a, in a high level population for sure. Um, I was actually, honestly, I was shocked how many people I, I, I saw just through uh, slightly some just kind of additions I made to some testing um, just over a, probably a two year period. Um, now, like that may like for me, it was like, okay, well, again, like how I utilize any exercise or treatment progression, like I'm going to treat something and take it back to a test and see what's driving it. So uh, it may be something super quick that'll that'll take that away. Um, it may be something that's more methodical, um, but it was definitely, it's, it's definitely, I've seen out of the private sector, I have not seen it nearly as much as the, uh, the high end, high end thing. And I think it's multifactorial, honestly. I mean, you got to think, so I guess before I just go down uh, probably a, a deep rabbit hole, <laughs> Uh, I, I'm always looking for with, and this is whether they're athletes, whether they're businessmen, whether what, whatever they are, uh, I'm always looking for like, okay, what sets this person apart? Like, why have they been so successful? And I think that gives you a lot of clues when you're starting to treat them as well. Um, cause there's one thing I can say that I just treated a wide receiver, not very long an NFL guy that was like, I've never seen somebody be able to focus for that amount of time, like ever. I've never seen anybody do that. It was, it was impressive, but you also have to think like, if you're at the top of your sport, like there has to be a level of focus that comes with that, or not even the sport, like the top of your field, there's a level of focus that comes with that. So with that focus, like focus is stability. So how are, whatever you're finding, like, all right, you know, that's their focus. So now how do I destabilize that? Mm. Uh, and at that, like, if I can destabilize that, I have to give them a new reference for stability. So like that, that sounds tricky, but I mean, that could be as, I mean, that could be listening to music in one ear, you know, <laughs> that could be, uh, you know what I used a lot for a couple of years actually do you know those i always forget the name of them but they're like those pictures and drawings where it's like i see a duck but you see yeah. a rabbit and like when people yeah. can see the other pattern you destabilize them interesting and you will like you will see your testing will change dramatically what you think is like okay this is orthopedic testing like it shouldn't do that but just by like recognizing that um yeah it's 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 pretty wild so you're using that as a means to open up an opportunity to create change. Yes. And then truly lateralize them uh, one way or the other. As I mean, even like talked about maybe being too far left in a lot of those individuals, you'll see maybe only half their bodies actually going left. And so they're actually still on the right. Some of them, yeah, they may, they, they can get left, but they can't get out of left or they can get right, they can't get out of right. But sometimes it's like, they think they're left, but you yeah. talk about like a, a sway yeah. or, yeah. you know, like I, you see that 
probably more often than not. And especially people that are first getting into, maybe they've only taken one course, like PRI course or what, what have you. Um, I think they're more like, they want to get really good at the techniques. And like, it's, I think it's really easy to start doing that. But even like, as you're learning some, some manual techniques, like uh, you want to help internally rotate the ribs. You'll see people like push straight down instead of uh, more of an internal rotation. Mm. Like that's not, that's not helping them lateralize. Yeah. Um, that's cool. That's a, that's a good little thing right there. Um, so when these people get lateralized to the left and they're generally more so athletic populations, yeah, working at a, at, at a higher level, does this happen because they are trying to get left or does it happen because perhaps they had an injury to the right? I'm sure it's multifactorial, but in, and there's no conclusive answer, obviously, but what do you think causes this uh, reversal of a typical pattern? Yeah, I, I think there's a respiratory reason, honestly, more so than, than anything. Um, Cause a lot of these people haven't done, you know, postural exercises or they haven't done anything focused on that. Um, I know before um, we started, we were talking about like a hurdler uh, I was seeing and, and she was a, like uh, she'd lead with her right leg and would land with her left. But it's like when she would hit, she kind of, kind of dropped down and she'd had, she'd had a pretty extensive injury history. Um, I was just treating a, a track athlete recently that very similar pattern, but she leads with the left leg. Mm. So again, like I think there's a huge, it's multifactorial to your point, but there's a huge respiratory reason because what athletes do better than anybody, or again, just high end people in their field, they compensate better, better than anybody. Yeah. And like, uh, a firm believer in like you're looking at what are your compensators and what are your limiters and we all have so from a respiratory perspective now we compensate generally speaking with respiratory frequency so like we're breathing breathing faster um but we also have tidal volume to worry about but like as you get more fatigue your tidal volume as you fatigue is generally not going to get better but your frequency is going to pick up. Uh, it's just trying to, and I think we've all been there in a workout. Um, <clears throat> if you've ever vomited working out, you've for sure been there. <laughs> yeah. Or if like for those CrossFitters out there, like you've for sure been there, but any like very difficult workout, we all know when like, all right, we can't control our breath anymore. And so you start becoming more attuned to that. And when that's occurring, you'll see like everything falls apart when that happens. Yeah. And like you have, like you want to talk about like thoracic rigidity everybody's doing like these thoracic spine exercises well you know what if you're hyperventilating like your trachea is just fit like it, the dead space is getting greater and greater and your trachea sits right on top of your thoracic spine so i'd say there's a chemical reason why that's also taking place um but your i mean your cardiac system same thing heart rate everybody looks at heart rate there's your frequency who's looking at stroke volume not a lot of people. So these are like every system has a limiter and a compensator, but then I think we all have one system that's really like the limiter and compensator. Uh, and I think more often than not, I think that's the respiratory system. That, okay. 
uh, maybe I need to talk to you about this off off the <laughs> podcast because my mind's going in different places right now. Yeah, I we could definitely have an interesting conversation about that, but it'll go over um, some people's heads here. But so, are you saying that the the, these different limiting factors, like these athletes are pushing themselves to a certain limit or they're exposed to higher amounts of fatigue and that influences how they get into this deeper compensatory pattern. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's stress and that can be stresses anything to anybody, you know, like that could be working out really hard, but like just continuing. So it's fatigue for lack of a better words. Um, but you can mentally create that same response. Like if, if I tell you like, Hey, look at, I, and I learned this from a friend of mine, a, a guy that mentored me a lot in this, this area named Brian Kozak. Uh, but like, if you look at your phone, like pay, pay attention to your breath when you pick up your phone. Mm. And like very few people, uh, don't hold their breath, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and it's not like an exhale pull. It's like, you're, you're inhaled and you're holding you're testing it right now. Hopefully most of your listeners oh, do too. You know what my friend tells me all the time? He, he tells me like, I'll do this thing. And I never thought about it until now where I'm, you know, on my phone. And all of a sudden I'll just like exhale all this air out. Like as if I have been holding my breath because I have. Yeah. I never really yeah. connected that. That's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of these individuals and a lot of athletes in general, like we, or uh, just people that are like type a, you know, they've got those rigid rib cages, uh, they're hyperventilated. And it's funny because, um, Buteco, I forget his first name, but you probably heard of the Buteco method before. I mean, he was seeing this in the fifties and sixties and, and saying everybody was calling him quack. Uh, but he was trying to drive CO2 levels up at that point. Because again, it's like, what most people I think fail to realize is they all think they need to breathe more or breathe deeper. Uh, there's more than that. You got to have, that's, that's your energy. Those are the people running the show, let's say, or running in the race, but you have to have, you have to have like taxi. I, I compare like CO2 to like a taxi or an Uber. You have to have the taxi or the Uber to take them to the starting line. So everybody forgets about CO2 and I've seen it with injuries. I've seen it with flying. I've seen it with dehydration. Uh, I mean, I've seen just lack of recovery, uh, poor sleep. People's peripheral oxygen levels are usually through the roof and it's like their hemoglobin or their CO2. If you have a capnometer, those are usually the, a lot of the problems. And I, I think you start to see that in a lot of those, uh, whether it's a, broken pattern or whatever. Uh, if people are in pain, you're going to find this. So I don't even want to say, put a, a, a name on it or a, a diagnosis like that, uh, but is you're going to see this. Is it worse with the more compensatory they get? Do you find? Yeah, because they've been able to blow through stop signs <laughs> better, better okay. than most people, but you, you do, you see, you just see more rigidity kind of in their system because of that, in my opinion, because I think, uh, again, like oxygen creates a lot of heat, uh, but like, it's just getting used up, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just, they're just burning right through it. Um, so there's, I think there's a big chemical response happening that, uh, that if they can't 
first of all, get fully exhaled, uh, they're not going to be able to start to reset that pattern. So I, I still think that's like the first step, because if they can get fully exhaled, then you can start, then you can talk about doming the diaphragm. Uh, you can talk about uh, driving alveolar CO2 up, which is, which is important. Um, you can talk about uh, coordinating a tongue with a diaphragm. You can talk about uh, NO2, I mean, getting... <laughs> or nitrous oxide, sorry, uh, getting, getting regulated from a nasal perspective. Um, these are all, again, like all these different systems, they've all like got pieces that, that go together. Um, and, and I think, I think that's a piece where if you can get somebody fully exhaled, start to drive up that CO2 level, because you got to think somebody rigid, uh -huh what's your body's like greatest vasodilator co2 yeah so um, if, if i can get co2 up mm -hmm. i should be able to inhibit a lot of things and get rid of inflammation because it's a pretty gnarly uh anti-inflammatory so are you so basically like all these things that you know pri like a lot of these people that are into this breathing stuff the things that they talk about and the benefits of yeah. all this, it starts with the good exhale. Now, from there, where do you go? Like, you got that down. Like, is there any other, like, you know, more specific strategies you will use for these people that show like these, these, um, basically the issues we just talked about? Yeah. Well, and, and I, I will say, like, again, you're not going to be able to do it with everybody, but the, but there's so much genius in utilizing the balloon because it does, it allows you to get fully exhaled and it coordinates the tongue with the nasal uh, passage, uh, that's huge. And I, I think people just see it as like, oh, I'm getting exhaled, but like the nasal portion of it and coordinating the tongue and the diaphragm. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen a dissection of like a, an airway, but like the tongue, the trachea, the diaphragm, and they are super closely connected mm. uh, and, and interrelated. So. Those are, those are real, and neurologically, I mean, just huge. Um, we've got a little one right now that's like, the tongue does so much for their, um, just for their palate development. It's, it's oh. wild. Um, but from, from there, like I wanna, so again, I'm gonna take a lot of these systems. Like if there's one thing I saw with like DNS that I was just like, blown away by and i don't think they even teach it in the states anymore but i know they they do in the czech republic but like when you would stimulate these patterns with reflex locomotion uh like breath would start to know it would normalize that was like one of the first responses you would start to see uh their their tongue actually their uh their mouth might start watering so okay there's a clue the tongue's involved mm. in the system but you would see like you'd start seeing their their air would essentially drop into their pelvis and you'd see it 360 degrees around the spine. So, so what are they doing to stimulate that? You said reflex. So there, it's called reflex locomotion. Um, and there's a doctor, worked with kids with CP uh, named Vladimir Boita. Uh, and he had developed this system in the Czech Republic in like the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, somewhere in that 20 year period. Um, and that was, that's a big piece of the DNS system um, as in how they were teaching it 15 years ago. But I, I think since 
Um, I think they've kind of shied away from teaching it that way in the States, the exercise components, they, they really hammer on right now, but I don't, I don't know. I haven't taken one in a while, uh, but I had heard that they, they aren't, uh, they're like stimulation zones. So they're like neurologically rich areas that will stimulate an entire pattern, uh, in a stage of development. So mm. one of the most powerful ones is like four months of development, um, our legs or our hips will flex to 90 degrees and we'll get sagittal stability of our spine. And when that happens, like that's when your breathing is like, it's your diaphragm's fully domed. You're getting that 360 degree. Um, and again, 360 degrees, you gotta think it's like, that's 360 degrees. It's not around, it's the whole, you know, mm -hmm. the whole, the whole thing. So that's, you really do. You start seeing it like deep into the pelvis. It's a different feeling if you ever, experience going through that system um and then again they'll they'll go into some sideline patterns and uh they'll start uprighting um but I mean, turning over and rolling over is important what's that what does that specifically look like if you're gonna like do that as an exercise or a drill yeah so honestly like i've used the sideline stuff a lot which is starts about five months of development uh, we'll go to kind of five to six, seven months. And it's really then starting to like, if I'm laying on my side, it'll look like a lot of the PRI exercises yeah. uh, look similar. Uh, they'll just break down pieces like DNS will break down some pieces of the movement. Um, and like, so you have to like really start to learn like what's happening on the stabilizing side, what's happening on the stepping forward side um, as they'll refer to it. And then if you can, uh, if you can essentially resist any portion of any of that pattern, uh, you can start to stimulate that entire pattern. So the goal, what, what would cool. be the goal in that sideline position then? Like uh, Again, it's going to depend on kind of what my intent, but like, uh, let's use a low back. There's a player in the playoffs a couple of years ago we had that, uh, like, I couldn't hardly do any. We'd been playing on turf for like six weeks. This is in the bubble. And yeah. like dropping down to, to block. Like, so you just got to think he's just jamming everything he's, he's got. And it's like, I, that was like the one thing where I could get him into a position and like, Hey, I was just honestly, I was turning out right glute max uh, to do it, but to really open up, uh, open up that right hip. It was unloading his spine. It was, I mean, you could, it's just using that as a driver. And it was like, so it's starting to disassociate some of his, like his pelvis, maybe from his thorax at that point. And then you can start to link some of those things back together. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. That's that. that so they don't teach that in the States anymore. Then they don't teach the uh, reflex locomotion sort of the stimulation stuff. They may teach it under the Voita name, um, but they do teach courses still, which are very valuable. Honestly, like DNS helped me understand PRI. PRI helped me understand DNS better. So they're, they're very complementary systems, very much so. And it's, it just goes back to development, developmental kinesiology. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there's, uh, there's another system that um, the person that, so for, for context, there was a person I was working with online um, had Andrew take a look at him and he's, he did some really interesting things, which is how I got connected with Andrew and um, really like 
some, you had some things in there that I thought were very, very interesting. Uh, one of the things was that you were just having them do straight up like static stretching positions and you were having them hold that just like three by 30 seconds before getting them into other things. I was curious, like your thought process behind that for someone, I mean, he's, this guy's like kind of locked up. Um, not the worst I've ever seen, but he definitely had trouble getting into certain positions. Yeah. So, uh, great question. A lot of people are scared of, uh, isometric or, uh, static stretching, but really like that's that. I kind of just said what I was going to, that's what static stretching is though. It's an isometric. Uh, so if somebody's, it goes back to what we were talking about a little while ago, like getting like a, a high foundational level of CO2 hemoglobin, like that's what happens when you static stretch. That's like that heavy feeling you get in your legs. Like, uh, you create in these positions, especially as you do them for longer periods of time, like you're creating a, uh, an occlusion. So you've created enough tension in the muscle to essentially think about like squeezing an end of the garden hose. Hopefully you're not squeezing both ends. Cause that takes, that's like 90 to hundred percent, like one RM, uh, that's a lot of tension you have to create to do that, but, uh, you're creating a lot of tension. And so your blood volume levels raising your stroke volumes, increasing, uh, and like you're starting to vasodilate that system. So it becomes more pliable. So after, by the second or third set, it doesn't feel anything like the first one because you've created that vasodilation effect. Uh, and, uh, the, that's kind of out of the, like what I was giving him specifically was out of like the myofascial stretch. Uh, it's, it's under Givoye system. Uh, but it really is, it's, it's an ISO. And I, and I think one thing I was having this conversation with an individual yesterday, uh, isometrics are kind of starting to become in vogue, but I think it's important to start thinking about like when an injury occurs, what's happening from a vascular perspective. So you are, you're tearing blood vessels. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard of Evan Pycon, but I, we were having this conversation maybe a week, week and a half my ago. Stuff has all of this physiology stuff you've been talking about. My mind's been going to his stuff like the entire time. <laughs> so, so while we were having the conversation about like, well, blood vessel tearing and like, I, and this would be just my theory. Like, I think there's a big uh, atrophy effect that's happening. And this is acute or surgical. Um, there's, there's other things, a cascade of things that are happening, but I think one of the important parts of like coming back from an injury is, uh, kind of re revitalizing those, those blood vessels, um, and isometrics help with that. And they help with just like reformation, like collagen break, uh, lay down. So, which is kind of out of the, uh, like Spina, we'll talk about that in the FR system functional range system as well. Gotcha. So you're using the, you're using the static stretching positions, like an adductor magnus stretch. You're using that to create vasodilation, which should therefore increase stroke volume. And it should help with all these things we just talked about. So that to put it simply, like you're kind of creating a window of opportunity and in, in yeah. that essence. Yeah. Gotcha. Very, so it's up the tension that's created by that static stretch position. Yeah. You think about individuals that are very like high toned or just stiff individuals. Like yeah. you want to give yourself a window, then like 
you could try stretching, you could try some sort of hypoxic or hypercapnic work to drive up CO2. You could, uh, I've used passive BFR a lot. Um, and all these things, again, they're just creating a higher CO2 or uh, you're just getting a vasodilation effect in the tissue. Um, so it's giving you like that has to become more pliable um, and moldable. Maybe it's a better way of saying it when you're able to do that. Gotcha. And then you're going to follow it up. Like, do you have specific types of drills you like to follow that up with? Or do you just go, is that a very much individual case by case? Thing? Yeah, it's, it's very individual. I will say like the adductor magnus is a, uh, once you figure out the fiber orientation you want to work with, I found that to be that and some deep glute max stuff to be a very good like combo from just from the stretching perspective, but then to take that and plug that back into like, okay, like, uh, can I get into that hip? Can I get out of that hip to be able to do that? Usually people just feel like better after they do it. it, it even if you're just doing that by itself. Gotcha. What is the, what is the adductor magnus orientation or stretch you're referring to kind of look like? So it's like a frog position. If you yeah. could imagine that like on your knees, uh, I'll generally go ankles behind the knees and then I'll test them. Like, Hey, keep your arms straight. Uh, they'll, anteriorly tilt their pelvis first mm -hmm. which sounds backwards but then they'll anteriorly tilt and then they'll drop back uh they'll try the same thing from their forearms and then they'll try the same thing from uh i'll do forearms and hands uh, but uh with their feet together in that position um and it's it's actually a cool experience for people to feel like because it's so specific uh they'll really get an appreciation for just the different direction these fibers start to run and the, addu and the addu adductor magnus in general is just such a, a large muscle and a, a big hitter in the pelvis and yeah. for the trunk, the trunk too, honestly. Absolutely. So uh, I'm going to try this. So I'm asking for specifics. What about the <laughs> glute max one? What is that specifically? Uh, that looks like a, like you're laying on your back and it looks like an kind of an old school figure four or like, like where you cross over your leg and then I'm, I'm pulling one leg with my hands uh, trying to drive my knee and my ankle away. Yeah. And I think the important part of that is trying to, once you get into that position is trying to flatten out your sacrum mm -hmm. and that chin, as soon as you do that, it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> that's a little different. Okay. That's yeah. That's cool. I'm going to, I'm going to try that. That's I usually, I mean, the thing with static stretching is that my previous inclination to it is that because it's creating tension, Mm -hmm. That is not necessarily the goal of what we're trying to really accomplish with eccentric orientation, yeah. if that's the goal you're going for. But the way you just described it is very interesting in the sense of like, that can be very beneficial for the right person. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. But like, do you find it takes usually a couple of sets to get there? Yeah. Usually the first set's just like, Oh my God, a lot of moaning, groaning, yeah. <laughs> usually the second or third set, the third, for sure. Uh, it feel the third feels night and day. And that's generally how they're going to teach it in like the myofascial stretch world. Now, again, you said three by 30 seconds. Uh, I will actually take that. And like, I, so I use moxie monitors a lot. Yeah. Um, and so with that, I found 30 seconds is a good place to start, but if you can, like the whole point of the Moxie monitor for me was to uh, be a sniper. So like, uh, been able to push that way further. 
uh, and, and just found that people uh, they can do a lot more in the isometric world when they than they thought they could. Interesting. And you're using what what on the Moxie? What measurement are you going after to like really? Uh, so so it tracks. Uh, there's the graph will have um, a oxygen like that's called SMO2 uh, and then it'll have total hemoglobin so that's myoglobin and hemoglobin together but it'll give you an indication of like when you hit those occlusions uh, the there's <laughs> you can get pretty deep in this conversation but like okay can I utilize oxygen can I deliver oxygen uh, can I like how how big's my tank? Usually the hemoglobin gives you a, a decent idea of that. Uh, how intense is the contraction force? Um, and I've done a lot in the, uh, just the injury space and seen some pretty clear trends on uh, when people are like really able to, let's say either push intensity or like you see a lot, like people are, let's say it's, we have a hamstring, um, you see people's ability to, okay, they can create the force, contraction force, but now they can't let it go. Mm. That's usually that last step before they're okay. Like you're not gonna have repeatability. And I think people get stuck in that phase a fair amount. And like, that's where you see, and again, it's multifactorial. I've lived that world, I, I get it. Uh, like where they can't let that go though, I think that's where you start to see some of the re-injuries occur and whatnot. And you can't, in a rehab, it is very difficult to elicit the kind of mental stressors that come in a high-end competition or game. So yeah. like we can't take, like those can create the same types of uh, physiological responses. Um, taught people to do Indian clubs with a moxie on their left quad and they'll occlude. So again, there's like, <laughs> there's, our systems are all connected. There is, you cannot separate these out. And if the Moxie has done nothing for me at all, it has done that and just proven that a million fold for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've got two here that I continue to be fascinated and uh, playing around with. Um, it's just so cool. Um, so I was okay. just say, I probably, I didn't really even answer the breath part of all this that it started with but like it kind of it kind of flows into the moxie uh, yeah. because you can create any of the whatever you're seeing let's say in your leg you can create that with your breath uh and again like i was mentored heavily by a guy named brian kozak at uh, he's down in austin texas at a place called evolve performance um really sharp group down there they're doing some really cool things um but like uh, I'll go from the, we talked about the balloon, like I want to make sure they're getting posterior fill in, in their back. And so again, maybe I go to that deep squat next. Uh, there's a breathing device that I will use. Um, well, it's used to be called Spyro Tiger. There's one coming out. You got one. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, so being able to utilize that, coordinate your breath again, like um, I don't want any vertical displacement when I'm just trying to coordinate my breath, but then you can start taking that further and further. So do I want to work on tidal volume? Do I want to work on frequency? And then how much air I can push with that frequency? Uh, I do a lot of hypercapnic work, especially when I travel. Um, I'm not traveling as much as I was the last decade or so, but 
uh, when I fly, that's one of the first things I'll do actually is, uh, I used to always do a sauna, <laughs> like find a place to do a sauna. The pandemic hurt that. So uh, now I'll generally do hypercapnic work again, like vasodilation, drive the, and, and I would, I was testing this with like, I'd wear moxies when I'd, fl when I'd fly. Uh, I'd throw a capnometer up each nostril to see like, okay, what's my CO2 doing? Uh, I experiment on myself a lot, as you can see. Um, yeah, uh, do it there. yeah, there's a number of different things I've done in that area. Incredible, man. It's incredible. This is, this is so fascinating. Um, like really, I, I think this is really cool. So it sounds like, um, I, I, I try not to, I'm not going to try to be like overly reductionist here, but it sounds like to me that a big part of what's important in terms of connecting all of these systems is like, we need to create a window of opportunity somehow. Like some people are going to be limited in other things. Some of you, it's just going to depend on the person, but essentially it's like, how can I get more blood flow physiologically to these tissues? How can I get them to occlude and then decompress and that's part of the physiological equation for sure. Um, but in terms of biomechanics, you need to be able to get this person to be able to, you know, alternate, reciprocate, get from side to side. And then in terms of the visual system, you've got to have that be opened up as well to allow for the biomechanics and the physiology to get set in place. So you said that very eloquently, um, but, but I will say, and this kind of goes back to one of the things like to bring Spina into this again, is like they're like number one thing, first and foremost, they're always going to create space. And I think that's a, I really like that way of how they describe it because that's really what, what you're doing. So whether it's visual space, uh, whether it's tile volume, that's created space whether, I mean, any sort of vasodilation effect is creating space at the end of the day. So uh, that's, yeah, I'd say that's the, that's the name of the game and just allows for, uh, this is probably like something, well, I don't want to put words in Ron's mouth, but space is going to allow for variability. Yes. Which is really what's, from a neurological perspective, what we're kind of going off of. Yeah. And you mentioned something before we started recording, and I think it's a generally a good rule of like, what is the test they perform the worst on? Or mm -hmm. like, what do they show that's like the biggest limiting factor? Now, when someone comes in and they're working with you, like it's probably hard to take all of this stuff we just talked about into account in one session, right? So yeah. are you starting with just the general biomechanical approach? Are you Are you thinking like, okay, like, do I need to think about vision? Like, do you have a simple place you start to then move out yeah. from there? So like the, especially the first session, like I'm always going to do spirometry testing and I'm going to, um, I've got a kind of a general, it's a full body assessment. So no matter what their issue is, like I'm going to do that because I can like, it's repeatable. I can teach it to anybody and like, you can always go back to that. And I'm looking for some specific things. So we talked about the cervical lateral test, like, okay, like if that's locked up both sides, uh, I know somewhere, at least I'm not going to start, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm not going to start in supine. Um, if the thing with spirometry, I, I like that as more go back after the fact, um, it's, there's a skill to, if you've never 
utilized for uh, spherometric testing before. Um, but like, uh, I'm, I'm looking for like, okay, what tests just, it doesn't add up. So like, I'm always circling tests, like as I go or whatever, I'm putting them in red if I'm typing them out um, and like looking for like, okay, this is, maybe there's three tests that like, okay, like this is X pattern, but like this one's really off. Okay, like I'm gonna go and I'm gonna attack that uh, first. And like from no matter what my exercise prescription or treatment is, it, it doesn't, I'm, this isn't just a, a PRI or DNS or Altoa or myofascial stretch. Um, like I do a number of like different soft tissue things or things in the weight room as well. Um, so I just know like, if you know your anatomy well, if you know, at least like what you're seeing then like okay attack it how you think fits for that person because you're meeting them where they're at too and then just go back to that test did that test change yes okay like what was the next test or no like okay i addressed it incorrectly uh so kind of back to the drawing board um but if it did change that then i start looking at those other tests on kind of on down the line and it helped for me I don't know that this would be the case for everybody, but it helped me like just progress from A to B way quicker and A to C way quicker. Like it's, there are situations where you just got to worry about oh, it's a baseball analogy, but just hate singles. Uh, and, and like, I think you got, you need to recognize those patients that you're working with and like uh, people that have just been through a lot. Um, I'd say from a physical and emotional perspective, like sometimes just worry about hitting a single and then, or if it's super acute, you're not going to hit home runs on all those. Um, and then, but it did, it allowed kind of some of those home runs to occur more frequently. Uh, when I, when I started just always going back to the test and again, it's, if it's repeatable and like, I'll measure it with a going out, like a digital goniometer on everything at this point, um, just so I can get even more consistency. Um, but I, I will say like, there's always going to be a respiratory component for me because I, I just see that as it's the master integrator. Like mm -hmm. it's, uh, I think it's the, we're not smarter than the human body. Like no matter how smart we want to think we are, like there's, I think the breath is right now. And, and maybe my thoughts on this will change over time, but right. I, I don't, I'm hard pressed to find a better indicator from your system than your breath. I think it gives us a lot of clues that we're looking other places for. In terms of measuring that, where would you recommend people start in terms of like, other than like the, you know, the PRI approach to it, like in terms of the physiology of it, where would you recommend people start to look if they want to get more into measuring that? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a good question. Uh, honestly, some tests like it, what I think this is more of an exercise approach with within PRI, but I think it does a good job of like, okay, if I can, like, are their ribs pliable first? If they exhale, will they drop down? Uh, if I hold one side, like one chest wall down, can they fill the other side? I think starting to look at just something as simple as that, like you don't need any tech, you don't need anything. Um, I think internal rotation of the shoulders and external rotation, quite honestly, I think will tell you a lot. Um, it's 
probably more difficult for people to picture this, but pronation and supination of the forearms also tells you a, a pretty good amount on like what's what's their trunk rotation like at that point. Um, mm. Do you expand yeah. on that? Uh, yeah, so if you start to think like gait, for instance, is essentially your posterior shoulder or like one shoulder going to the opposite hip. And if you start thinking about like, okay, well, I can take that one way. Now I'll try to supinate and take it. Mm. Like it's just going to help you really drive that even further. Um, just, just for a simplistic, ex, more simplistic explanation. Uh, explanation. Uh, and the same thing's got to be happening with the other arm. If I can pronate and reach with one hand, I got to supinate with the other. But you think like you're getting, and, and this is over dramatic, I realize, but you're getting an extensive arm swing. You're getting kind of that spiral uh, way. It's going to call it a limniscat uh, or like a spiral line in the anatomy trains or the mm -hmm. fascial manipulation or the stecco world. Um, so again, all these people are saying some of the same things. They're just kind of, they're looking at it a little differently. Right, so it's measuring the pronation and supination like that. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it uh, here at rest um, just to take other factors out of it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've, it, it gives me an idea and I'm going to back it up with some other, with some other things just to confirm. Cause it's again, like maybe they had, uh, they broke the wrist when they were six and they, you know, they didn't tell you about it. Yeah. So again, like I want to, I don't want to just take one test for face value. Like if, like, again, that's why like I'm going to circle something like, okay, that's off. But the other test should start to feed that or more of the story comes out. I'll ask him more questions. It'll start to kind of guide my questions. Question. Absolutely. Oh man. That's yeah. That, that's, that's awesome. And, and I know you, you mentioned like, usually like most people aren't going to have access to tech, but if you do want to look into the tech, this is a selfish question for me as uh, a spire tiger. You're yeah. Your so, uh, yeah, the NX is going to be coming out soon. What's That's uh never heard of that. I N E X. So that will be uh through Evolve Performance. Um, oh, they're doing that. That's right. Yeah. I remember hearing about this back in the day. Okay. Yeah. So that should be they've stopped making the Spyro Tiger. Uh there's a company called IDAG. Um they make a different device now. Um I like the Spyro Tiger. I like the uh the NX because it it gives you a there's there's something in the device that actually gives you like an uh a reference more or less with your breath to kind of that makes it more like comprehensible or uh it's just easier to understand um from that per, from a neurological perspective like i'm if i'm getting reference for there's a lot of things that don't give your lungs or your diaphragm a lot of reference you know they've got to hit some end ranges and i think their device really helps with that. Uh, there's another device. Which device was that? Sorry. So that's the NX or the Spyro Tiger. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you can use like the the other one for that other company. There, you can do it without a bag, which is nice because there's like mm -hmm. a bag you breathe into. Uh, but I think because of that, you lose some of that reference, and and it actually keeps you in a specific CO2 range, uh, which for like what I want to play with that. <laughs> That doesn't, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. Uh, you can do some other things with it that are really cool. So I don't, I don't want to um, talk poorly about it. There are some cool things about it, but 
for some other purposes. I like the other device better. And then there's a, uh, there's a version out of uh, Canada called the Breathe Way Better device as well. That's uh, uh, super light. It's easy to use. Um, uh, it's in, in certain situations, like, again, I could toss that in my bag and, and no problem, but, but the NX, I'm super excited about that coming out. Yeah. Is there like a release date for that? Mm, it's a good question. I think it's going to be what it is it's June 29th right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be, uh, I would imagine in the next two months. So by the end of the summer, but I can't give you a for sure release date on it. That'd just be my, uh, educated guess on it. Cool. Um, and then other tech besides that, like, again, like, uh, use a spirometer. I, I do it every day just to kind of track things and develop trends. Look at, um, I still, I love the Omega wave. Uh, and yeah. like, it's kind of, I feel like people have forgotten about it because of like the whoop bands and like the aura rings, but like, I don't know anything else that's testing DC potential at a uh, valid level. And like, there is like, they're super close relationship with our metabolic system, with our sleep. And like, we're worried about testing all these things like DC potential of our brain seems like it would be at the, the top of that priority list. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Like, figure. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what, and then Moxie monitors and yes. definitely use that. There's i uh, I'm looking forward to, I'm about to start playing around with the bio harness so I could see, get a really valid look at uh like respiratory frequency and tidal volume mm. uh which it has like it does heart rate it, it does some other things but like those are the things i'm really interested in seeing very cool all right yeah well andrew man, i want to i want to respect your time and like honestly this has been so cool i i really genuinely appreciate you coming on here uh, i took away so much from this and you're a brilliant guy so thank you for your time today thank you thanks for having me man